This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Uh, let me start with some prayer. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that you have shared so much of your glory and your majesty with us, Lord. Um, I, I can't imagine at all what it would be like to have the sky rolled back and thousands and thousands of angels singing praises and glory to your name. Um, if one is scary, I, I, I don't know what that, would, what that would be like, Lord, but you, um, you cannot help but be praised. Jesus said if, if uh, the rocks will cry out if the people are, are silenced. And, and here, in such a glorious way, Lord, you're, you came to earth in, in the person of Jesus Christ and it was sort of uneventful, and yet uh, the angels couldn't help but worship and praise you for what you've done, Lord. So I pray this morning as we consider sort of the circumstances surrounding your birth and in a, in a way how insignificant the, the situation was, uh, that we, like the angels, would see the greater uh, and more glorious significance of, of our God taking on flesh. So I thank you again for the story. Lord, I pray that you just give us some clarity um, and give us worship of you. In your name I pray, amen. amen. So this morning I thought it would be a, a good time to mess a little bit with traditions. Um, I, uh, it can be known to be a little bit of a Grinch during the Christmas season, which is, yeah, Kelsey's like, uh-huh. Um, which is why when we did onesies last year, they got me the Grinch one. Um, so there is a Snapchat of me, Daniel, and Abraham cycling around Wash Park in Grinch onesies um, on Christmas last year. Um, but, but we uh, uh, traditions are are something that that we all hold, and we all have kind of a uh, a different experience with them. I think overall, a, a tradition. I like the definition was is transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation. The transmission of customs or belief. And, and those can be uh, some more serious traditions, like I'm wearing a ring. So as much as I want to buck tradition, uh, I'm, I'm happily wearing this ring. Um, those can be uh, traditions that are, are less serious. I, I think about the fact that uh, no matter which house I go to, my parents or my brothers or my sisters or my house, for whatever reason, all of the chemicals are stored under the sink. It's like, that's just how it was done where I grew up, and now that's how it's done where everyone in the family lives. So we have like a, a wide range of serious or less serious traditions. And I think sometimes we love them. I think that there was a, there was a chat uh, with the worship team around the Advent Guide, and basically as soon as Thanksgiving was over, there was a few of them that were just like, now we can do Christmas stuff, woo! You know, like, like it was holding them back. And now that Thanksgiving is over, they can jump into the tradition and the holiday yeah, that, they, that they were really excited about. And, and there's some of traditions where I think about how I grew up um, and just some of the beliefs that I had held around Christianity uh, that I utterly reject. And that I, I actually feel a little bit deceived that I saw things the way I did when I was growing up. And so it kind of makes me suspicious of, of tradition. It makes me a little more, more of a Grinch. Now, um, as I think back, it could have just been my 
unbelieving, rebellious self not really getting what was being said to me. But either way, what I took away from my upbringing sort of in the church, some of those traditions I would would very much reject today. So we kind of have this like mixed view of tradition from serious to casual, from love them to avoid them, from hating them to wanting to build new and awesome traditions. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted a, a little bit this morning to use scripture to sort of help reorient our traditions, to use scripture to help mess with our traditions. And so uh, I want to quote, before I go to the outline, I want to quote the London Baptist Confession because I thought this was uh, a helpful summary. If you're curious what Emmaus as a leadership team believes, the London Baptist, the second London Baptist Confession, it's online, it's free, it's everywhere, it's like 400 years old. It's a little booklet we have. It's a a summary of sort of Christian doctrine. And this was something they were talking about scripture. They said, scripture is the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, all decrees of councils, all opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits can be no other but the Holy Scripture. The Holy Scripture is the supreme judge, essentially, of all of our traditions. The Holy Scripture is the supreme judge of all of our traditions. Which is comforting in the fact that God's word hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Like, this is stabilizing. This is something, regardless of our personal experience, regardless of how, much, how serious we think something is, how, how casual or how insignificant we think something is, right or wrong, we can take our traditions and ultimately, Scripture will be the supreme judge of those traditions. Scripture will be the supreme judge. So, this morning then, I want to use Scripture to mess with our traditions. I want to use scripture to kind of shake up our traditions a little bit. And even from the outline, I think um, you can see there's like an increasing level of intensity around our traditions. It's going to mess with our decorations. It's going to mess with our decorations, our Christmas decorations. It will mess with that tradition. Scripture is going to mess with our marketing. Okay, maybe it's a little more serious, you know, like how we want to present ourselves. And I think scripture, most importantly, most importantly, messes with our view of God. Because we see God a certain way based on things that have been passed down to us, based on experiences that we've had. We're we're shaped by who we are and our upbringing, and we need scripture to kind of mess with that tradition so that we have an appropriate view of God. So it's going to mess with our view of God. Let's start with the, the less serious one at the very beginning. And it's, first, it's going to mess with our, our decorations. Uh, when, if someone says, I put a nativity scene outside, what do we all think of? <laughs> <laughs> like like the little house thing, right? And a couple animals, and then the, the manger in the middle, you know? And then maybe the three wise one kind of off to the side or something like that. Because we're, why, why, is he in the, why is he in the little house stable? Why is that? 
because there's no room in the inn. Come on, the kids would know this story. <laughs> there, there's no room in the inn. And, uh, so let's read, the, let's read these first verses, and I want to kind of mess with our Christmas decorations a little bit um, around this reality. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was basically, in the Roman Empire, their way to be like, Hey, how many people are here? Because I need to know how much you owe me. Whether that's soldiers, or in Israel's case, they were not inscripted into the military because of a sort of a special... Um, relationship that they had, but they still had to pay tribute. So they would, they would actually get uh, Roman people would work with local people and they'd figure out the best way to organize the groups so they could count how many people in particular areas so they could figure out how much you owe the empire. And so what better way to organize the local group of people, if you're a Jewish person at the time, than to say, hey, let's divvy everyone up by their tribe and where they're from. But it's really important to the Jewish people that their lineage was very important. Their tribe was very important. As we look back in the Old Testament, that's how everything is talked about. So this is what happens. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So there they go. They go to Bethlehem, and I feel like our our, our Christmas stories, our decorations, it's like they go to the inn and there's like no room. And they, it's like Joseph is traveling to Bethlehem and all of a sudden he's like, oh, I can't believe my wife, surprise, is nine months pregnant. How did I, didn't even know. <laughs> I, I could have planned better, but I decided to travel right at the time where she would totally give birth. So now I'm scrambling around Bethlehem looking for a place to put her in and oh, there's no vacancy on anything. So I guess I'll just go to this stable house where the, where the animals are and put her there. That's like the image that we have and that's the decorations that sort of represent that. But what's interesting is even in the next verse, look at what it says. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Like they were already there. They weren't running around scrambling for a place to stay. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So it's interesting how we have understood that. What is an inn in ancient times? It's sort of the question we've asked. Like, like they traveled and their Marriott points were only so much. They were silver, you know, they weren't platinum, so they couldn't like just jump right in last minute. You know, I feel like that's kind of how we imagine it. But, but think about this. When, when people would travel to the town where they were from, who do you think they stayed with? Yeah, like the people that they knew, right? So did, did Joseph's like family own an inn or something? You know? So what, what's one fascinating understanding of this is it was originally like a cave because there, there, it was carved out where, where their family would stay. There'd be a separate place that was carved out for the animals to protect them from the elements as well. Um, so so they're like the home was over here and the cave was over here. And our, our understanding of that, and there's a commentaries over the last couple hundred years sort of lean on that, that idea of this cave, because our understanding from that comes from a writing of uh, Justin Martyr in about 150 AD. So we look back on history and we say, well, when I, 
when I read Justin Martyr talk about this, he talks about this idea of a cave. And so if that's the case, I'm gonna use history and I'm gonna say, well, it must have been this, this idea of uh, this carve out and there was a house over here and this is where they were, were staying. And it doesn't, it doesn't totally make sense of this idea of an inn, but it's using kind of history to say like, what's the best way to understand what was going on here? And, and if we understand this sort of culture, this family culture where people would, would take in travelers or where they would be very hospitable and they would be not room in their house and they would find a place to put them. And so that's sort of been a prominent understanding of, of this sort of manger scene for a while. But then we did, so this was, so then in the last couple hundred years, we've been digging up old houses and doing some archaeology in Israel. And I thought, you can credit Tim for first bringing me down this rabbit trail with some of the stuff that he recommended. Um, and it, what's, what's interesting is if you Google like authentic manger scene, it's still mostly a cave, like like if you want like one built, it's still like a cave. But since then, our understanding of history has changed a little bit. As we uncover things, if we find more information, we see that they're, they're oftentimes for poor, middle to lower class families in the city, they would have a house in a lower level dug out to keep and protect the animals. And that lower level that was dug out would then have feeding areas like a manger, a little bit higher up. So if you were, let me use an anachronistic term, if you were in the kitchen, you could just walk over here and put some food in the bowl for you know, your pet cow or whatever. I mean, that's a terrible way to say it, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> and most of these houses, because they were hospitable, because they were, wanted space for, for, to take in the strangers, a really important part of Israel's history, there would be a separate room like a guest room with another door, usually not connected to the main family room where there, where there was the, the lower place for the animals, there'd be a separate guest room where they could bring people in. And this actually comes up in the book of Luke. So look ahead, chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus is excited. Oh no, let's jump to 22, sorry. 22, chapter 22, verse 11. He's excited to do the Passover meal with his disciples and he wants to do it on the down low. So he tells them to go out and speak with someone about using their guest room for the Passover. He said, verse 10, we'll start in verse 10. He said to his disciples, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house... The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where is the guest room that I can eat the Passover with my disciples? What's fascinating is that is the exact same word that's used for in in chapter two. And if you want to write down chapter 10, verse 35, there's a different word for inn, like a commercial inn, like a place to stay. There's a different word for that. So it's more than likely that Mary and Joseph came into town, were poor, part of a lower class family. Joseph had some family members. The guest room was already full. 
because there were people flooding into town for, for the uh, census to be taxed. And it was just full. And being that Mary was pregnant when they showed up, it would have been obvious, knowing that that was coming at some point, they probably had separated the sexes and the midwives helped Mary in the living room, this full room full of lower class people huddling in a house together for the census and had baby Jesus and had nowhere to put him because it was so full and they put him in the manger. Now, is there anything wrong with if you, if you can no longer decorate your, if you have a nativity scene at home, you don't have to take it down and have it reconstructed to be historically <laughs> accurate. Here is kind of the point I'm trying to make. When we go to scripture, sometimes our understanding of history, the, the knowledge that we have or the environment that we're in predisposes us to interpret it a certain way. And what's fascinating about this one is we, we, someone, probably the King James Bible, because it was like the most popular English version, probably used the word in and predisposed us for this for like hundreds of years. And then someone stood up and said, look, history says it was a cave. So we have to say it's a cave now. And then someone stood up and said, no, no, no. History says it's a house like this now. And, and, and so our understanding of history begins to then shape and change and, and, and orient our, our view of what's going on here, our tradition. And at the end of the day, we have to go back and say, well, what does scripture say? And, and not that people don't do this, but if we look at the words that are used, the fact that Jesus wanted to go to a guest room, wanted to go to this, this additional room of the house to do Passover, and in the same book of the Bible in Luke, he uses a different word for people who keep an inn where like the good Samaritan pays to, to have the person in the inn, we can look at scripture and say, regardless of what we believe about history, <laughs> scripture is ultimately the thing. It's the supreme judge that shapes our traditions. Scripture is meant to be the supreme judge that shapes our tradition. And we go to scripture it would, it would seem more likely until we dig up something else <laughs> that there was a guest room and that they were in a crowded lower class house. And I think whether he was in a barn with animals or in a guest room, we know what the point that Luke is trying to communicate. He's communicating to us that Jesus is coming for the lowly. Jesus is turning things upside down. Jesus is in the way that the Lord of Lords and King of Kings comes into the world in the slums, in a crowded apartment somewhere, is already saying that things are going to be really different. And if that's a manger with cows, also very different. The, the point is sort of the same. But I think at the same time he's messing with our traditions around our decorations, you know, I said these would each get increasingly more serious. <laughs> He's also messing with our traditions around marketing. What do I mean by that, around marketing? The number of times I've heard someone say, I feel like I'm trying to think of a good context for this. We're talking about what God is capable of often in 
with little resources, right? Like we're a small church. We have little resources. We're like, God is capable of doing great things. And I hear, yeah, but don't we want the gospel to impact the most people? Like, don't we want it to spread? No. And I think the implied thing is yes. But we're kind of saying like, but if we had more people or resources, think of the impact we could have. Think of the, think of the way we could just get out there if this or this were to happen. And I was joking with some of the other pastors at, at CCD. I don't even, this is like, someone is spending hundreds of millions of dollars for a Super Bowl commercial to instigate conversations about Jesus. And we were joking about it. And the, the comments from the other pastors were like, I can think of other ways to spend hundreds of millions of dollars for the good of the kingdom. But the short version of that is all of those big resources could help us really get it out there. I just disagree with how they're doing it. <laughs> and that, was, that didn't fall on me in the conversation, actually. I was like, yeah, that's silly. We shouldn't do it that way. You should do it this way. But even at the time, I was like, yeah, all that money would really help. We could really get it out there. I just wouldn't do it this way. Those guys, they don't know, you know? But we have this idea that the, the power of the world or the influence in the world or the, the scale at which we're able to market things to the world is what's going to make the biggest difference. I'll make it a little personal. How many of you are confident that a church this size can make any difference in Denver? Or let's just make it even smaller. How many are confident that you can make a positive impact for the gospel with your neighbors? If only you were more trained, better equipped, who knows, I don't know, pick a thing, had more Christian neighbors to rally behind. We have a view of, of, of marketing, even like good things like the gospel. And a lot of times we think in kind of the world's way. Like, well, we have the right message, but we're still gonna use the same method that the world uses. I think Jesus is messing with that tradition, that belief that's been passed down to all of us in how he announces the most amazing, the most miraculous, the most incomprehensible, the center of everything that would happen in all of creation, the incarnation of God himself. What deserves a Super Bowl commercial more than that? Is God short on cash? Look at what he does. He goes to a group of shepherds out in the middle of nowhere. I like how one commentator described it. Like, we leave town and you know, like, oh, there's like a 7-Eleven. You know, there's like a neighborhood over there. This is like pitch black wilderness 
nothing is around. It's dark everywhere. And there's a small group of shepherds probably huddling all their sheep together from different places so that they can take turns just being awake at night so that animals don't come in or thieves don't come in as they protect the sheep. Very insignificant. Not a good way to market and get the message out. In verse 8, describes this scenario. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord uh, appeared to them. And on top of that, this, this is fascinating, not only an angel, but the glory of the Lord. Like that, that's reminiscent of Moses up on the mountain or, or Israel following uh, the, the tower of fire, the tower of smoke by, by day and by night. The, the vis- not just an angel, the visible glory of God appears in the middle of nowhere while these shepherds are just hanging out. And they were filled with fear. That makes sense. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you, you shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, who is the Messiah, the Lord. The Lord. That's the word for for Yahweh in the Old Testament. I'm showing up in the middle of the nowhere to tell you that God has shown up on this planet, has taken on flesh to be the anointed one, to be the Messiah that would lead the people out of slavery, that would lead the people out of oppression, that would rescue everything wrong in the world and, and make everything right and restore humanity for what it was intended. Amen. And let me tell you a sign about that while I'm at it. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, a feeding trough. That had to be confusing for them. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> the Messiah, the Lord, the God of the universe has stepped into time to, to change everything, to be good news for all people, and you're going to find him in a feeding trough? Amen. <laughs> I love the kids echoing that. Amen. This is consistent with the story for the last few chapters, right? Like you almost shouldn't be surprised by this. The one guy who had some status, like Zachariah, he wasn't even the high priest, he was just kind of, you know, in the ranks. The one guy that had some status also had some problems in his heart and pushed back. (laughs) Didn't go so well for him. Elizabeth, barren. Mary, teenage, not important anybody at the time. John goes out into the wilderness. He's pretty obscure for a long time. Like, Jesus is consistently turning things on its head and saying, I am not marketing the most wonderful thing in the entire history of the world the way you would expect. 
I'm doing it totally different because that's how I work. Because that's how I get glory. Because that's, God's just saying that's how I show off what I do. I'm the one who has all authority, all power. I'm the one who's capable of spreading this message across the entire globe. And what does he pick to do that? 12 illiterate dudes, you know? A couple of them were literate. But some fishermen, a tax collector. Luke was kind of a physician, but he wasn't one of the original 12. Like, he doesn't pick really great dudes. Even Paul says later, how many of you are wise? How many of you are of noble birth? God chooses what is foolish in the world. He chooses what's foolish in the world to confound the wise, to humble those who would be proud. That's what he's been saying the whole time. So I want to encourage you. Look at what the shepherds do. Verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Like, let's go check this out. And then verse 17, it says, they, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Amen. They were like, what? They wondered. Here's what I think God is trying to encourage us with. Yes, the gospel is for all people. And we want its impact all over the world. Amen. We want it to reach more people than it does today. We want that. Everyone, I mean, Christians want that. <laughs> That's a good desire. The rub comes when, how does that happen? The rub comes down to the method of getting that message out. How do we market as Christians? And I think what, Luke is communicating to us here what comes up in the Old Testament, what comes up in the New Testament. It's something really simple. This is how God has equipped you. Has he revealed himself to you? Has he made his goodness and his glory known to you? Is he a comfort to you when you're struggling because you have a sense of who God is? Is there stability in what God's word has said when the world is swirling around you. If you have a genuine sense of the presence of God and you're thankful for that, you're equipped to share that with others. Amen. If you have a genuine sense of God with us, of joy that comes from him in ways that seem different than everything else in the world. You're equipped to tell others. And if that's how you communicate it, they're probably gonna marvel. <laughs> what? 
you're telling me there's something beyond what is tangible? Something beyond my hobby? Something beyond my job? Something beyond the bank account that I have? Something beyond all the cool breweries I go to? Something beyond all my favorite restaurant experience? Something beyond all the influencers that go to cool places all over the world? <gasps> You're telling me there's something beyond all the things in this world that I can't touch and see that brings joy and peace and gives me a sense of rest? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's crazy. I think that's encouraging to me because it is in some sense that simple. If God has revealed himself to you, he's equipped you to share that with others. And it you know, says the people marveled. That doesn't mean they were like, I'm on board. I mean, that could have been like, whoa, you're weird. I think of Paul in Acts when he communicates that message basically to a bunch of unbelievers. Some of them are like, sweet. Actually, it says a few. A few of them were like, let's go. I want to hear more. I'm excited about this. Some of them were like, this man is nuts. (laughs) He thinks people raised from the dead. (laughs) And some of them were like, "Eh, I'll listen. I'll hear some more. I'm not in. I don't think it's stupid yet. I like that story because I think when we communicate that the presence of God, not things in this world, are an instrument for our peace and joy as we worship him, I think some people will think you're crazy. I think some people will be drawn to it because we go back and forth and back and forth and we spin around and around and around and guess what? Nothing in this world can actually give you peace. You're saying, right, (laughs) There's something more than everything that's here. And I think some people will be, you know, that sounds neat. Maybe we can talk about it again. I don't know how I feel about it. And that's okay. That's okay. That's how the message is meant to be communicated. And I think God is using scripture to mess with our views of marketing because we have all these grand schemes for how we could get the message out. If only we had hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on the Super Bowl ad. You know what? It could do great. Who knows? God will use it nonetheless. But he has a method. And he uses people with no influence, no status, no training. Because he says, when I reveal myself, you're going to want to share that. That's all I want to do. He also messes with our view of God. Our scripture does. I guess God does. Messes with our view of God. I skipped over verse 14. We know, like, what is, I think, maybe this is just for those of us who grew up in a Christian tradition, but I, I mean, how many times, I feel like it's ringing in my head. Maybe it's in a play or something. Someone can tell me. But it's peace on earth and goodwill towards men, right? Like, that's the phrase that you hear all the time. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That sounds kind of different than what we read uh, this morning. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Peace towards those God is pleased with. That seems a little more specific and less for everyone. It feels different, right? Like peace on earth, goodwill towards men. You know, what? that just, we like that. That could mean anything. But it says, peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. And our traditional understanding of that text comes from a mistake from the King James Version. <laughs> like they just didn't have a, a, one letter difference in the tense of that word changed the structure of that sentence. It was a sigma. One letter difference. And I think both could generally apply. But how does it make you feel when the angels say, peace for those that God is happy with? Peace and joy for the ones God is happy with. That's a less sellable Christmas message. I think we can respond to that in a couple of ways. I think some of us are like, yeah, that makes sense. I could see that. Makes sense that God would be happy and bring peace for those he likes. You know, I kind of get down with that. I think some of us also maybe are saying, yeah, it doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. What's God's deal? And I think both of those responses have a wrong view of God. If we're comfortable with that, and we say, oh, that makes sense then what, is he pleased with you? Are you fine with that? (laughs) Think he likes you? Is he a holy, all-consuming God whose standard is absolute perfection? Where scripture says, even our righteous deeds that are tainted with our sins are like filthy rags. Are you good with that? And I think on the flip side, if we say, okay, well, peace among those whom God is pleased. And we say, well, that's not fair. Why does he have such a high, impossible standard? How could I ever make him happy? Why is the peace that he offers conditional? God is kind of a jerk. We have these views about God. He's either pretty chill with me because he's, you know, no one's perfect, but I'm pretty good. God's cool with that. Or we think he's kind of not so nice because the standard is too high. Why has it got to be so harsh? We have this view of God that's wrong. In a sense, that's our tradition. That's the kind of the air that we breathe. And, and part of that isn't anyone's fault in particular, but because we're separated from God because of sin, we don't see him right. We need scripture 
not just to mess with our traditions on how we decorate our manger scene, not to reorient us around how we market the gospel to those around us, but we needed to reorient our hearts towards our view of God. Think about the story. Who has God been pleased with this entire time? The lowly. The insignificant. The losers. The failures. Those who need a physician. The broken people. The sick. The outcasts. The ones in the story who beat their breasts and say, have mercy on me, God, I'm a sinner. That's who he's pleased with. That's who he brings peace to. The essential heart of God is his grace and mercy towards those who are sinners. That's who he is. He's a just God. He's a just God. <laughs> it's a great song. Come into his presence with singing. Singing. We sing that all the time at my house. Um, he's a just God. But when we think about the essential attributes of God, think about like who he is at his core. Is there a need for justice within the Trinity? <laughs> Father, Son, and Spirit correcting wrongs. No. It's like a ridiculous statement. God exerts his justice, his wrath, when something is messed up in the world. He responds to what's going on in the world. But at his core, who he is essentially, at his nature, is gracious and merciful and loving. That's his default mode. That's who he is. Look at Exodus. I have that passage on the screen, Exodus 33. Moses wants to see God. I mean, he's seen a lot of really cool things. Things that are amazing when you read through the story. But that's not good enough. Because he wants God first. And the Lord says to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you, I know you by name because I'm going to show you myself. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is how he shows who he is to Moses. Moses is like, show me who you are. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you, my name, the Lord, Yahweh. It's a, essentially the same thing the angels are saying. The Messiah, the Lord, is showing up. I am who I am, the self-existent one. And let me show you who I am deep down. 
Let me reveal my character to you so that your traditions about who I am are utterly demolished. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Grace is undeserved favor. So who is the Lord pleased with that he brings peace? Those who don't deserve it. Those who know they need his grace. Those who ask him and plead with him to show mercy. And he, that's, he loves that. That's who he is. I think a part of that is really hard to believe. When we read the passage in Luke that says with whom he is pleased. And we say, whoa, what's the deal, God? I think a big part of it is because in our current society, we're conditioned, we're conditioned to do it right. You have to do it right. You have to achieve. You have to get yourself together. You have to make time for yourself. You have to do everything. And you know, it's usually it's said a lot more nicely than that. Like at my spin class, where they're like, you took time for yourself. You should be proud of yourself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, wait. That feels weird. <laughs> Can't say that out loud and then go preach on Sunday. <laughs> Selfish is good. But it's, if everything in the world is putting it on you and God says, with whom I'm well pleased, we reorient that back on God and say, why do I have to do all that? Or maybe we say, good, I've done all that. And God's saying, I don't work that way. Essential to who I am is I do it for you. I give you things you don't deserve. I show you mercy because you can't. Essential to who God is, is that it's not on you. So his good pleasure, the fact that he is pleased with you is when we say, Lord, I can't. It has to be you. It has to be you. And I think that's the beauty of what the shepherds did. God shows up and says, look, glory to God on whom he is well pleased. You shepherds who are nobodies in the middle of nowhere, I'm bringing a savior. And what do they say? Let's go to that savior. Let's go find him. That's what God's encouraging us to do. We fall short. And he's saying, go to the Savior. Go to the one who lived the perfect life. Go to the one who died as a punishment for your failures. Go to the one who is capable. And as you see the glory and majesty of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you say, thank you, Lord. 
you're equipped, just like the shepherds, to market that to those around you. And they're going to be amazed. They're not really going to understand it. But sometimes, through the work of the Spirit, something will change. And they will say, I want to see that glory and majesty and beauty too. And you can say, let me bring you to the Savior, the one who did it all, so that you could enjoy the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful and kind God. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us when we think less of you as we so often do. We need your help just to think of you properly. Um, Thank you that you, through your spirit and through your word and worship and practice, we actually have inclinations of your of your character, true and, and right taste of your mercy and your grace, Lord. I pray that you would just give us more of that. Thank you that when we stray, we know that you are committed to us. We know that you will finish the good work that you began in your people. The ones you're pleased with because we recognize that we are not sufficient. I thank you for that, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.